You're listening to the Ministry Grow Show, brought to you by Reliant Creative, the creative agency for gospel-centered ministries. Find out more at ReliantCreative.org. Welcome to the Ministry Grow Show, a podcast dedicated to helping churches and ministries grow and make more effective impacts for the kingdom of God in an ever-changing digital world. Whether you're building and growing a gospel-centered ministry or leading a church, if you want insight into the strategies, struggles, challenges, and successes of other ministry leaders, you've come to the right place. Welcome back to the Ministry Growth Show. Today on the show, I'm going to be talking with Lockie Caravias, and he is an incredible filmmaker, and I'm excited to have him on the show. Lockie, thanks so much for being on the show, man. Hey, Zach. Thank you for that very kind introduction. Yeah. Well, we've we've tried this once before, and uh, we weren't able to have the episode go live. So I'm really excited to have you on the show again and uh, see if we can't give this another shot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think with all things considered and what's kind of transpired over the last year, the timing's probably perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to hear some of the updates on what's been going on with the film. Yeah. So b- before we get into that, can you share... Uh, some of your background with us, so we have some contact context for uh, some of the topics we'll discuss today, and and then how did you get started in video production and storytelling? Yeah, um, I, I mean, my background in filmmaking uh, is was kind of by uh, accident, I guess. Um, I actually started. Uh, working in the social work field. And I always had like a passion for storytelling. I was always that kid who was, you know, if something very anticlimactic happened in my day, I would make it into a grand narrative. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, when I, uh, you know, kind of had this like internal passion for film, I, I, when I was working in the social work field, I started making these like little short films with uh, the high schoolers I was working with. And that kind of led me to this point where um, we ended up getting a grant to do a film camp for at-risk youth in Portland, Oregon. And I was kind of on the outskirts watching all these kids write their little scripts and work with these industry people and make their films. And uh, I that kind of showed me that that's something I always wanted to do. But I always thought that filmmaking was for a special type of creative person. Uh-huh. And uh So anyways, I started, you know, kind of dabbling here and there. And most of my work, because I was connected to the nonprofit sector, was toward, was, you know, focused on like humanitarian sort of organizations and, um, you know, making these little videos that were kind of promoting the work that they did. And yeah, I've been doing that for about the last 10 years. So. Okay, cool. And and what are some of the organizations that you've worked with in, in film production and storytelling? Yeah, so I I mean the biggest one I've worked with is World Vision that anyone um, in the nonprofit sector probably knows about World Vision. Uh, but before that, I was you know working. I, I worked with an organization called Peace International that was based in Uganda that was helping bring peace between the two tribes of the Dinka and the Nuer in South Sudan. I had worked with an organization for a lot of years called Little Kids Foundation that were, you know, essentially uh, teaching people in. 
uh, economically fragile context around the world, how to utilize pediatric massage, uh, physical therapy, and uh, chiropractic techniques to work with children, um, which is like sounds super weird, but when you think of that being a very sustainable form of healthcare for people who don't have access to hospitals, it makes total sense. Mm. Um, you know, I had done work for. Um, you know, even in Portland, Oregon, uh, an organization called Hatch Innovation Laboratories that was uh, pretty much a hub for social enterprises to have kind of this incubation uh, to help their social companies grow. Um, so those are just like a few, but it, it, they all obviously kind of touch uh, some sort of, you know, social uh, focus. Um, and then a lot of my work has been with humanitarian organizations specifically focused on uh, child protection and enrichment. Mm. That's awesome. Um, and, and as we get into t- today's discussion and topics, can uh, I want to hear why you think storytelling is so important and, and specifically for the nonprofit and ministry sector, which is most of the audience listening to this show. Um, I, I have my views on why I think storytelling is so important, but coming from a filmmaker, somebody who is a storyteller, who has skills in that craft, why, why is this so important for ministries to take seriously? Yeah. I mean, even the, if someone were to ask me the question, like, tell me about who you are. And if I were to start that with, you know, I was born in 1982 and, when I was this age, I moved to this city. That's one way I could like introduce who I am. But if I started saying, oh, let me tell you this story. Like I remember when I was five years old, me and my dad, we were walking to the store and, you know, it, immediately the audience is drawn in, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're going to still get to learn that information. But when you're presenting information through a story, like we all know that that has a different level of impact. And um, I think part of this, when I was working with these nonprofits, I found myself very bored (laughs) by the sort of content we were producing because it didn't match the amazing people that we were meeting along the way. And I think so much of this is just like leaning into the characters who essentially are carrying all this information that nonprofits and humanitarian and Christian organizations need to convey. But why not do that through an actual character who, you know, carries that information, you know? Well, and, and like we know that, that we engage at an emotional level through story so much more than, well, I don't think there's, I think you could argue that there's very little emotional engagement when you're just communicating data and statistics and mm-hmm. strategies. Um, but when we can communicate at that emotional level, at that heart level, then there's potential to get somebody connected to our work or our brand or our organization or our ministry uh, at a much deeper level because there's the heart is connected to it and it's not just information in my head. Yeah. And as a species, like we know this to be true. This is how we communicate with one another. This is how we communicate in, in 
community that when I am hanging out with my friends, like I don't tell them if, if something happened to me in that day that I want to tell, share that story with them. Like, I'm not going to say, Hey, I went to the grocery store today and I bought these items at the grocery store and I talked to this person named such and such. And then I came home. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to, th- that wouldn't connect. That's not how we interact. I'm going to, I'm going to tell an actual story that took place. And so connecting at that emotional level is so, so important. Right. Yeah. And I, I think there's, uh, you know, if anyone were to, you know, read any books on screenwriting or crafting a story, you'll kind of see this reoccurring uh, hero's journey and everyone kind of has their own take on it. But it, essentially, it's the idea that stories that really impact people leave the audience with survival information for their own life. Mm. You know, so just because we're telling a story about, you know, for Messania's story, this woman in West Pakot, Kenya, her journey and what she learned along the way actually matters for me in my life in Portland, Oregon, because her, her story is a, a story of her quest for identity, you know, in a world that was uh, really cruel to her. And, you know, when when we were creating content that essentially is just talking heads, like you were saying, conveying informations and stats, you know, we miss out on a real opportunity to leave the world with something that is going to be useful for them in their everyday. So I, I in our previous attempted uh, podcast that we did, like even the story of, you know, we, I think we talked about Finding Nemo. You know, finding Nemo, you know, on on paper might seem like, oh, it's a story about a father, you know, trying to find his son who's lost in the Atlantic Ocean. But really what that whole film is about is the idea that the things that we love, we have to be willing to let them go. Mm. And that piece of survival information is accentuated through everything that is written in that script, you know, Marlon, the father, he pretty much right at the beginning of that film, he loses his wife and his kids, except for Nemo. And so he's hyper, hyper protective. And the only way for Marlon to grow and finding Nemo is not Nemo's story. It's Marlon's story is that he had to be thrown into this grand adventure that went against everything in his fabric you know, because of the trauma he went through. And at the end, you see this like amazing test where Marlon has this chance to decide to let his son go or to hold him close. And it's when his son Nemo sees all those fish that are in trouble and in the net. And it's it's this moment of reckoning for Marlon where he decides, okay, I've gone through all this journey and I've learned this one thing along the way. I think is is filmmakers, is, you know, nonprofit organizations, humanitarian organizations, we have that opportunity with story. And sadly, we miss it so much of the time. Well, and, and <clears throat> ministries talk about the difficulty that they have so often with connecting the realities of what may be going on in Africa or India or wherever they're working. Like the the cultural barriers between those type of places and communicating that to a Western audience and a Western donor base, those cultural gaps are gigantic. Like if you tell Mm -hmm. me about the strategies and the statistics that exist 
outside of my culture, outside of my context, I'm not going to be able to relate to those things because those two cultural differences are so far apart and have such a gigantic gap between them that Mm -hmm. it's no wonder that ministries can't get their donors to relate Mm -hmm. to what's taking place in the, in the areas that they're doing their work. Mm -hmm. But if you can tell a story like Messania's story, um, that follows some type of structure that is a true story of a real person going through real struggles, overcoming those real struggles, Mm -hmm. and then applying what that person or individual has learned to their life moving forward. I can watch that as a Western donor who doesn't share that same cultural context. And I can relate to that story Mm -hmm. and I can relate across those cultural barriers and those cultural gaps because I also share that same structure that same experience going through my own life. Now it's going to be very different, right? But Messania's story is very different than my upbringing and experience, but I'm still going through life, experiencing challenges and struggles, overcoming those things and applying what I've learned in those situations to my life moving forward. And so because I'm following that same pattern in my own life, I can relate to her. And now I've crossed that cultural barrier and, and I can connect myself to her story and ultimately connect myself to whatever brand or organization is telling that story um, because I relate to her, even though my our two different experiences are vastly different, right? Yeah. So that, that's a good segue, I think, into the next question. Like mm-hmm. you, you mentioned the hero's journey. Do you, are you following story structures like that every time you try to communicate a story? Is it pretty consistent? Are you always following the hero's journey or is there like a three act story structure you like to follow? What does that kind of look like in your process? Yeah, I think, I think for documentary work, it's uh, it's a little bit different than if you're, you know, working on like a fiction piece where everything's kind of like mapped out, you know, with documentary, it is, there is a lot of unearthing, you know, but one thing that helped us with Messania's story and continues to be a guide and any project I work on is, um, you know, I, I, I tend to uh, gravitate more towards, um, it's, it's almost like a seven-part story structure that essentially is like a three-act story structure broken up. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know, three-act story structure could be explained as simple as this. Act one is where you get your character up the tree. Act two is where you start throwing rocks at your character and act three is where you get them down, you know, and and almost any film we watch, you're going to see like the majority of the film is this character who is having all these obstacles and struggles, you know, but what moves a character from act one into act two is essentially you have this like once upon a time, what was life like before this thing happened that kind of threw your character into this journey or this quest. And so, you know, those sort of things, just the more you hear any one story, and if you're really paying attention and you're making, uh, setting a table for those conversations to happen, you're going to see this story in all of our lives. And so I think with Messania, it was, you know, kind of going into, um, into that, uh, you know, when we first went into her home and started interviewing her, you know, it was, 
you know, just kind of coming with this assumption and expectation that that story is there. And if we went in not believing that it was there or kind of oblivious to it, yeah, we would have missed it. We would have just had her talking about all this information. But going into knowing that that core story structure is there, it is with all of us, it really helped us uh, capture the content that we needed. So, so were you following like Dan Harmon's variation to the hero's journey, like his, his uh, um, story circle yeah. or another variation? I mean, I do like Dan Harmon's story circle. Uh, I, I think what I did with this was more based on it's uh there's a book called invisible ink by Brian McDonald. Okay. Um, and I was reading that a lot during the, the editor of this film, because essentially Um, you know, when you're doing a project like this, you have hours and hours of, you know, (laughs) talking content and it's really about like, okay, what is, you know, that one thing that we really want to say and how could we structure, um, all this content into this sort of arc so that, you know, what first thing that happened was obviously having to get every word she said translated. And then I had to print everything out. And I had this room where I literally had everything taped around the wall and started color coding and finding themes. And it was a real struggle. You know, it probably felt like you're given this slab of marble and you have to make this like beautiful sculpture out of it and just not knowing where to start. Yeah. And, you know, so yeah, I would say this, uh, you know, invisible ink and it's kind of that idea of a story being broken up into um, once upon a time, which is just the setting of where this world takes place and who this character is. And then the second part is in every day. So what did this person's look person's life look like every day? And for Messini, a lot of that is talking about her childhood. And then after that, it's until one day. Like, what is that thing in, in film that's called the inciting incident? The thing that took this, this normal equilibrium and kind of threw it for a loop. And the the next sections are and because of this and because of that and that is essentially most of your story what are all the things that happen that eventually led your character to this point which is until one day Hmm. and then the last part is and ever since that day the and ever since that day takes into consideration everything your character has learned and how you see this in lord of the rings like you know Sure, Frodo is back in the Shire at the end of Return of the King, but things are different. You know, he's learned something along the way, you know, and that is really what the hero's journey is about. Yeah. Yeah. Watching the Messania's story, um, knowing that you didn't follow that hero's journey structure to a T, but still seeing mm-hmm. themes and similarities to her story and how you how you shared her story that followed that journey structure was really, really cool. Like the fact that she leaves her ordinary world as a, as a young adult or a young woman, mm-hmm. um, even though her ordinary world was very different than you and I's ordinary world, right? She leaves yeah. that walks away from that situation, not knowing what the next thing was mm-hmm. um, that, that aspect of that, follows like the hero's journey to a T, right? I'm going to leave my ordinary situation into this chaotic special world that I don't know and have never experienced. And I'm going to learn something in that about myself. Um, watching that film progress, I was like, man, this, 
he had to be following the structure, but no, knowing that you didn't, it's crazy because it still follows yeah. some of those similarities or structures. Well, yeah. And I think, you know, true talk, like as a filmmaker, as a creative, as a human, like I look back at the project and there's so many things I wish we did differently. Mm. You know, I watch the film and I'm like, ah, I wish we captured some of this, or I feel like this is missing. And that's always going to happen. Right. You know, it's like, you know, there's, yeah, there's, there's always those things. And I think if I, could go back to the beginning of the project. Yeah, I, I there's definitely a lot I learned along the way of shooting and editing and yeah, just what I'll do differently next time. Yeah, well, as is always the case, huh? Yeah. So, um, so how how did you land at World Vision and and yeah. specifically as your time progressed there? Um, how did your time there culminate in the story of Messania? Like, what, like, was this a, was the production level and the style of this story something you had always wanted to do during your time there? Like, was this a build up towards this big thing or this big idea that you always wanted to do? Yeah. Um, yeah. So the way I first connected with world vision, I was actually, um, you know, a, a year before I started at World Vision, I moved to LA because I was like, I'm going to commit to being a film director. And I left everything in Portland. It's not that far, but you know, anyways, I, I went to LA and uh, I was there for about three months. And I was like, I do not like this place. And I had a lot of people telling me, like, if you want to be a director, like maybe LA is the last place you should be because nobody wants to help you with your projects because everyone's working on something here. You kind of get just like lost in the sea of amazingly talented people. Yeah. And so I had a lot of people say, maybe this isn't the place for you. And while I was deciding what I was going to do, I got a call from a friend who somewhat jokingly said, hey, do you want to be a, a driver around the US for a Ugandan children's choir? And I I think she didn't realize I was really looking for a reason to get out of LA. And so I ended up uh, going on the road, driving around the US with this, uh, this amazing organization called Bridge of Hope Africa Ministries. And at the tail end of that time, which was in December, I did not know what was next. And I remember... Um, receiving an email from the the head of the video department at World Vision, Tom Costanza, great human, who said, a friend of yours uh, told me about you and we would love for you to apply for this job. There was an opening for a video producer at World Vision. And, you know, in my heart, I was like, I don't really want a full-time job. I want to have my freedom. But I, I knew, knew a little bit about World Vision growing up in the growing up in the church and knew that they were doing some cool stuff, although I didn't realize till I got there how amazing the work they're doing around the world is. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of reluctantly applied. And then I kept making it through rounds of interviews to the point where they gave me the job. And I remember when I got that email, I was like, where we were staying with the kids, there was like this uh, garden behind this church we were staying at. And I was walking through and I felt like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, like not my will, but yours be done. But I'm wrestling with like a 401k and not really, (laughs) you know, quite what Jesus was. But, you know, I really did feel a nudging that 
this is what God had for me in this season. And in my original conversation with Tom, I said, have you guys ever made like a proper like documentary? And he said, no, but we've always wanted to. And he said, maybe you'll be the one to do that. That was my, you know, first interview call with Tom. Oh, cool. Yeah. And once I got to World Vision, uh, soon after I started, uh, there was um, the Child Protection Department who wanted to do this piece on like FGM, forced forced child marriage. Mm -hmm. And Tom connected the department with me and I was like the new guy. And they were like, we don't want to work with that guy. We don't know who that guy is. And Tom says, I have a feeling this might be something cool and connected us. And they came with like a creative proposal. This is what we want to do. And I said, will you give me a few days to come back at you with a, a different proposal of what I think we should do? And they said, yes, let's do that. So they let me sit in my office and just like ideate. And I came back with a proposal and they said, yes, this is the story we want to tell. And so, yeah, that's kind of how it started. And yeah, it's been a really cool journey. Oh, wow. So, so the, the idea behind this film started right off the bat when you got there. Yeah, it was like, I think I'd only been at World Vision for like two months. And then I gave them this this pitch. And we shot it that, like, I think we shot it in June of that year. and But I couldn't touch the footage uh, for almost eight months, because if anyone knows World Vision, there was all the stuff around uh, Chosen, uh -huh. um, you know, kids, uh, you know, choosing their sponsors and sp instead of vice versa. And I was kind of assigned to overseeing all the video for Chosen. So oh, okay. um, I, I wasn't allowed to touch anything with Messenia, even though I was like itching too. I was like, oh, I can't touch any footage yet. Oh, so, my goodness. That had to be painful. Yeah, yeah it was very painful. <laughs> no, so. Knowing you've got this incredible story in the queue and not being able to go play around with it and, and mess with it and start editing. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Or, or not knowing if the story was good or not. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> I think we just, you know, until you dive into an edit, you don't really know what you have. And I think that's why it's just important when you're, on set or on a shoot, like you have to get into this rhythm of like trusting your instincts. Uh -huh. And sometimes in the edit, you see that that sort of mode of operations really works to the benefit of the story. Um, but yeah, we were very grateful when we started piecing things together that were like the stories here. Well, I mean, you, you were on set, so you had to have known like, Oh man, this is, this is going to be something special, at least a, yeah. a slight, hint of that yeah you have a hint you have strong hints but you know i think it's there's always you know with any creative work there's always that level of terror that's like what if this is you know because sometimes we're you know with messenia's story we did some very experimental things you know with music and with you know these kind of recreations of her backstory and you know, even our director of photography, who's used to being this kind of one man production show where he's directing, shooting, editing, you know, he doesn't really get an opportunity where he's just, you know, d for anyone who doesn't know what a director of photography is, that's pretty much all the cinematography, the lighting, the camera. Um, but there were moments where he's just like, I don't know what you're doing. 
And I was like, you just have to, I was like, I I see something in my head. He's like, why are we shooting this? And it wasn't till I started piecing things together where he's like, oh, I totally get what we're doing now. Mm -hmm. So that's cool. So yeah, yeah. maybe that's a good segue. Walk us through Messania's story and, and some of the, some of the things that make this story that you feel make this story significant and special and, and Mm -hmm. different than other documentary storytelling pieces that have been done before in the ministry sector. Yeah. Um, I think what I am most proud of with this piece, and this could not have happened without the support of World Vision, the amazing team they have over uh, in Kenya, specifically the team in West Pakot, Kenya, which is where Messini is from. Um, You know, because really early on, when we put in a request to you know, to have this story of FGM and child marriage not told through a young person, but through an elder in this community, they came back and they knew right away who was supposed to tell this story. They said, it's Messenia. And my response to their, the head of their communications, who ended up being our, uh, our, our producer, uh, whose name is Mei Ondang, um, I said, can we find several women who fit this criteria? And they found seven women in that region and who were not only, uh, you know, former victims of FGM, but they were former child brides, but they also were former circumcisors because it was a major source of income for some of these older women in, in these communities. And so when we ended up flying, you know, to West Pacot with our team, we sat in the homes of these amazing women. And one of the last women we met was Messania. And immediately you knew this was her story to tell for what we were doing. And what was amazing is her community knew all along. We were just kind of catching up to what they already knew. And when I look at this project, back to your question of like, um, how, how did you phrase your question again? Sorry, before I quote you wrong. <laughs> well, just yeah, walk us through that her story a little bit, but share yeah. why you think this her story was special. Yeah. Like, what made this yeah. story so special and so significant? So I think what made it special. This is what I was getting to is the fact that we our main goal was for people to feel like they were really getting to know Messenia Mm. and being able to sit at her feet and to really humanize this one person who has touched these world issues. And if we could do that, we knew the film was like, it was impactful. It was doing everything we wanted it to do. And that's the response we've gotten from it. People say, I feel like I really connected with her, you know? So when we talk about like, you know, water crisis, or we talk about, you know, sex trafficking, or we talk about like economic empowerment, like how amazing to have an experience where you actually get to connect with a person who is experiencing that thing. Um, And yeah, I, I think that is... Well, yeah, that was one of the things that I noticed watching the film was that for most of the ministry sector and the most of the the films that I've seen, even the ones that are heavily story-driven, 
There's mm-hmm. still a bent towards and a desire for the ministry, whoever telling whoever's telling that story, to try to interject and and communicate as much about the cause within that film, intertwined with maybe that individual's story, um, to to try to force and and communicate as much as they can how bad the cause is and the statistics around the cause. And what was different about Messenia's story is that you there it was just focusing on her story. Like mm-hmm. those things those things about the causes and the issues came out within her story, but mm-hmm. there was such a focus in communicating her story and being true to her story without any other ulterior motive um that that it, it was incredibly powerful and emotionally engaging and yet it mm-hmm. still served to communicate the seriousness of the cause and the issue and mm-hmm. and and still did what all ministries want to do they want to communicate those issues and they want to communicate mm-hmm. how bad things are uh, or the problems that exist and but th- how you guys approached it was just it was it was taking that story element to a new level and it still served to communicate the things you wanted to communicate. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't heavily brand specific. It wasn't heavily cause or issue specific. It was just, here's Messania's story. And then the support of, or the communication of the cause and the issue and the brand that you were creating this for came out within that. Yeah. But, and it was so much more powerful because you had just focused on really, truly telling her story well. Yeah, I mean, what's what's so fascinating about this is, you know, at the at the early stages of the development of what this would be, there was that, you know, kind of uh, tug of war over how much, you know, like obviously World Vision is doing a ton of work in all of these areas, right. areas creating alternative rites of passages for young girls in those regions, you know, pro- providing economic resources for older women who decide to leave the practice of FGM, creating safe houses and primary and secondary schools for these girls who are escaping their older, often abusive husbands. So it it felt like, yeah, there's like all this stuff we could talk about in this film, but what if we just shine a spotlight on this character and through that character, we don't shine a spotlight on world vision, but we really shine a spotlight on these issues. And the one of the great things is there's no reason why we can't have supporting content, written content, other videos, you know, if people want to take a deeper dive, right. you know, but to get people to care, it should always be the first priority. And how are you going to get people to care without them connecting with another human who this touches in a real visceral way? And, you know, since, you know, I mean, just in the last year, I mean, this film has been used to spark up conversations with, you know, with donors, with, you know, big influencers like i you know this film it recently had somewhere like 1.5 million impressions on instagram through famous people reposting about the film uh, it sparked up co- conversations and presentations with members of congress you know this is just in the last year and 
essentially the film is being used to have a deeper conversation, mm. you know, but what the film is doing is it's, it's setting a, a playing field of people who actually care. It's moving them from being just an observer to something that they personally can relate with because they could relate with her. Yeah. They could relate to that, the character and the, the character story in that film. I mean, I mean, you guys barely touch on, I mean, the brand shows up twice, right? She talks about it, World Vision, and then it shows up at the end, worldvision.org, white text on black backdrop. But outside yeah. of that. So, so what's funny is actually in the, so this film has, is currently going through the festival circuit, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit, but we actually, the, the president of World Vision US, Edgar Sandoval, came into the office with an early cut. And I always kind of felt early on that I thought it would be great if World Vision wasn't even mentioned, mm. you know, because what it would say is that one of world, one of the things that World Vision does as a ministry is they shine a spotlight on amazing people telling amazing stories that in turn accentuate the things that their organization focuses on. And when Edgar Sandoval came into my office and he watched the cut, his first piece of feedback was, let's take World Vision out of it entirely. Mm. So actually, the the edit that's been making the festival around, she doesn't even mention World Vision. Oh, wow. Um, you know, so that was like something that is very against the grain of what I think anyone would do. You know, it's like... But I think because that decision was made, the, the piece doesn't feel like a branded piece for World Vision. It just feels like World Vision just decided to gift the world with a story. Mm. Yeah, that's incredible. And and the and you can definitely see the difference in the film and, and the emotional in, engagement impact that it has mm-hmm. not being tied or focused on a brand or a strategy or a solution and or cause or an issue it's focused on messania and the those aspects and those pieces come out within her story because they're a part of her yeah. story um and it's it, it's just really incredible i i think that this film it already has i mean i think it's already doing this but i think it's gonna kudos to you because i think this is going to be a film that that changes and shifts how the ministry sector thinks about storytelling and and so yeah very well done yeah thanks um so as you guys were telling the story you talked about how you found messania's story that the 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 community was a uh crucial piece and crucial part in pointing you guys in the right direction Uh, how else did the community get involved in the production of this film and um, I think the thing that's knowing this, the, some of the background behind this film, that's really exciting for me watching it was the audio behind this thing. So can you talk yeah. about that a little bit? Yeah. I, I mean, to, to your first part, like how was the community involved? Um, I think the first, what I'd like to say is when you're, you know, going into a community that's not your own, you're, you're working with people who have been through things that you don't quite under understand or haven't experienced personally. One of the worst things you could do is go into that place and feel like that's your opportunity to tell your story. And then you kind of, you kind of step into those situations, not as 
an active learner and looking to like participate with the story that that community wants to tell, you start kind of imposing your story onto this people or this place or this subject. And, you know, the, one of the huge benefits I had with this is I knew very little about child marriage or FGM stepping into this project. So it already positioned me into this place where I'm like, I need to learn everything I can. And, you know, what we discovered when we were there was that the the story that we were telling was that the, the community took such ownership of it. They all wanted to do everything they could to tell this story and wanted to accentuate everything in Messenia's story that they could. And so uh, just one example of this. So in, in the film, um, you know, the film opens up with this this kind of long uh, dolly shot of Messenia singing and gathering water at the river. And you hear this chorus of young girls uh, come in with this like beautiful uh, African song. And those girls are actually all former members of forced marriage and FGM who are living in a safe house in West Pakot, Kenya. And uh, the music throughout the film and again, this is just one example, you know, because we could get into, you know, all the actors for the reenactments, you know, the production coordinators, the translators, like people who are crewing at times. I mean, that's also largely built of, built of the community, but we'll focus on the music. But we have, you know, there's a scene where Messini is going up to uh, remembering in, when she was about 14 when she was going up to the cutting stone to receive, you know, the cut, which is how they refer to female genital mutilation. And there's this, uh, there's this performance group called Chepwanga traditional dances that is singing the, the ceremonial song that is sung when a girl goes, uh, for this, um, rites of passage. And, this these this group was actually a reformed performance band. They used to sing that song, but now they actually campaign against FGM and travel around Kenya. Our producer, Mei Ondang, had to spend some time with them explaining to them why it was important for the story for them to sing the song that they used to sing, that they never thought they would sing again. Mm. And as soon as they understood that it was to highlight this part of Messenia's memory, they sang with such conviction. And, you know, so that that kind of is, you know, uh, a window into how every piece of this production worked, because Messenia would tell us a memory of when she was young, dancing around the fire to the Adonka dance with her friends. And then after we left that interview, I said to our producer, I said, I would love to do some recreations and specifically recreate this moment along with these. And I'm like, we need different versions of Messenia. We need one of her around eight years old, one around 14, one in her late twenties, early thirties. And the next day we show up and we not only have these, you know, this young girl, teenage girl and woman who match these ages, but they actually have some resemblance to Messenia. This is all the work the community did when we weren't, when we were back at our hotel resting from our day shoot, you know? So yeah, it's a community effort through and through. Well, and, and as you watch the film, 
for our audience, if you have been to Africa, you know that there's uh, a feeling and uh, an experience, the sights and the smells, like there's something about being there that is different than where you come from. And when you watch most ministry films, um, it watching those films most of the time doesn't really take you back quite um, mm-hmm. like you you would experience if you were there. And the mm-hmm. thing, one of the things that stood out to me watching this film, and I, I think a large part is due to the fact that you guys were so invested in including the community to help out mm-hmm. in this project, um, and and a big part is around the audio being mm-hmm. all recorded in country. You you watch this film and you go, oh, this takes me back, like legitimately takes mm-hmm. me back to the places that I've been. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think that that is just a testament to um, as we tell stories to being true to the culture and true to the locations and the regions and the people that we're talking about in these stories and not trying to put a uh, African story with a Western Christian music track to the, to the film and, and expecting it to give the same feeling when our audience watches the the film. And so um, that, that piece that the importance that you guys pushed and placed on including the community to be involved in this production Mm -hmm. really shines through and, and takes the audience and the viewer back to, or to a place that they've never been or have been before. Yeah, I th- I think that you know that point of uh, you know just trying to really transport people, capture what's truly there. But you know, at the same time, you know, with our composer, there was that conversation of like, yeah, a lot of this will go to a Western audience. So how do you kind of, you know, you know, walk that line of giving honor to this culture and, you know, accentuating the beauty of what you experience when you're there. While at the same time, obviously, like I'm a Western filmmaker, he's a Western composer. So you're going to have, you know, that influence. And hopefully, if it's done well, that becomes a very symbiotic relationship that ends up just accentuating the story even more. But I think when it's imposing your ideas or your creative sensibilities onto a story that will come out in a completely different way that doesn't benefit anyone. Well, you guys did a great job in that. Um, Lockie, this has been awesome. I want to be respectful of our audience's time. So we're going to wrap up this episode and turn this into a two part episode. So thanks so much for being on the show and we'll be with you next week. Awesome. I'll take that is I talk a lot and let's break this up into two. No. <laughs> oh, this awesome. Thanks so much, Zach. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ministry Grow Show. If you enjoyed it, we'd appreciate it if you rate and or review us on the iTunes store and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you have a story to share with other ministry directors and pastors or know someone who would be an incredible guest on the Ministry Grow Show, let us know. We love connecting with ministry executives and sharing their wisdom and insight with our audience. Just send us an email at info at reliantcreative.org. And lastly, if you need help telling your ministry story, we would love to share how we can help in that process. Check out Reliant Creative at reliantcreative.org. See you next time.